Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, whom was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him one to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Theologian and pastor John Stott once wrote, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. I begin this sermon with with this quote from John Stott. For the same reason that I titled the sermon, The King Rejected by All. You see, we sit here in this room in the comfort of this building, in the comfort of our homes, 2,000 years removed from Christ and the events of of this horrific torture and crucifixion. And it's easy for us, from our perspective, to look down in disapproval of the people who were there and mocked him and reviled him and derided him on that day. It is easy for us, as we know the story, to look at them and say that they were blind, that those were evil people, they were evil for what they did. It's really easy for us in in our chronological snobbery to think that we would do better, to think that we would act better, to assume that we, if we were there, would have compassion on Christ, that if we were there, that we, in our sense of justice, would have called for His release. But the truth is, what the the Scriptures make really clear to us, is all the world rejected Christ. Everyone rejected Him. His closest friends rejected Him. Peter himself, the one who said he would never leave Him, rejected Him. All of the followers that had been with him rejected him. And what we're going to see in this text is that everyone else in that society around them rejected him. Everyone rejected him. All of them for their own reasons. But indeed, they rejected him. Our King, Jesus Christ, literally stood alone, despised and rejected by everyone. And I'll be so bold to say that if we were there in that moment, we would have rejected him too. 
In fact, we all have rejected him in our own lives. And we who call ourselves Christians would reject him still today if it were not for the grace of God. But that's the other thing that we're going to see in this text. The other thing that we're going to see in this text is the overwhelming grace of God. That Christ stood alone and despised and rejected. right? Not because he had to. Not because he had no other choice. He did so out of his love for his Father's glory and out of his love for his people. As, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Christ Jesus was despised and rejected by all for the joy set before him. Let that let your heart and your head wrap around that. Those two ideas seem to be in opposition to one another. But there it is, right? The joy of the glory of the Father saving His people. Christ endured the cross. Jesus Christ was despised and rejected by all for the glory of God and His joy. And so with that in mind, turn with me to Mark chapter 15 and we'll begin looking at verse 16. Now, before we get right into the text, let me just remind you where we are. The great battle of all time had begun. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. He was abandoned by his followers and denied not once, but three times by Peter. Jesus, now in the hands of his enemies, was wrongfully convicted by the Sanhedrin of blasphemy. And he was beaten by his own countrymen and now has been brought to Pilate, the Roman governor, who, has wrong, who there, while he was there, was wrongfully accused of high treason. Now, Pilate saw that Jesus was not a political threat to Rome and he sought to release him, but the high priest stirred up the crowd against him. And so Pilate had Jesus scourged or beaten with whips that had pieces of bone and metal in them. And so Pilate then presents Jesus, this bloody man, right, who has ribbons of skin hanging off his back to the crowd, hoping that he'd be moved by pity to release him, but they would not have it. All they do is shout all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate relented, not because he knew that Jesus was guilty, but because he wanted to avoid conflict with the Jews. It's easier to kill one man than have to fight the entire nation. And so he hands Jesus over to be crucified. This is where we pick up the story in verse 16. And it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Jesus was taken by the soldiers. But they don't immediately rush him out to crucify him. Right? The soldiers take it upon themselves to mock him and humiliate him. The soldiers are the ones who mock Jesus to begin with. They mock him because of the official charge level against him. Right? The charge that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, which for these soldiers was preposterous to them because, because in the eyes of the Romans, especially the Roman army, the Jews were a conquered subjected people, and they had no king except for Caesar. Even the high priest had admitted so much. In John chapter 19, verse 15, we read, And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Even the chief priest knew to bow before the authority of Rome. But here you have this average Jewish teacher, some nobody from nowhere with no army and all of his followers abandoning him, claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so they take it upon themselves to mock him. Now understand, they don't mock him because they think he's silly. They mock him because anybody who stands against Caesar is a political threat in their eyes. They mocked him because he was a political threat 
Perhaps Pilate didn't think that he was a political threat, but the Roman soldiers certainly thought he was. They had seen and put down a number of insurrections. In fact, there was a recent insurrection in the city. right? And, and they had punished many would-be messiahs in their own time. Each of them, each time, the Roman soldiers made a point to make an example of them. They wanted people to see, this is what happens to you when you stand up before Rome. Especially if you had the audacity to call yourself king. Because everyone knew that Caesar was a king. By the way, this right here is the root of the persecution of Christians by Rome later on. Right? Because Christians worshipped Christ as Lord and King alone. And they refused to bow the knee and acknowledge Caesar as the Lord. Right? It cost them many of their Christians their lives. They were arrested and tortured and beaten and killed for refusing to acknowledge Caesar as the Supreme Lord. Because Caesar has very little tolerance for anyone who is supreme over him. By the way, this is the same attitude that governments have today. And that's the attitude of the Roman soldiers. Right? They had the power and not the Jews. Which, by the way, is the fact that that's who they represent in this story. They represent all of those who were in power. Those in, position, in positions of power typically are threatened by Christ and His church. Those in political power have always been threatened by the church and Christ. They continue to be to this day. Is it any wonder that it has taken the Supreme Court just the other day to tell California that you cannot keep churches from meeting inside? The Supreme Court told the governor of California, you can't keep them from doing that. The Supreme Court criticized gov the governor of California for discriminating against churches while allowing other businesses to remain open. Those in power in our own government are threatened by Christ and the church, and they seek to establish their dominance over it. And given the opportunity, those in power will attempt to mock and humiliate those who follow Christ. Just look around what's happening in our country today. Look around in other nations. China is a country that will not tolerate the supremacy of Christ. But what we see is these soldiers who are in a position of great power take an opportunity to mock and humiliate Jesus. They, they want to put him in his place. And notice how they mock him. It says, they clothe him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put it on him, and they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. I want you to think about this, the wounded already and weak Jesus, they put a cloak over his bloody back and push a crown of thorns on his head and mockingly pay homage to him. In fact, it says, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And they mocked him. They stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own put his own clothes on him and led him out to, be, to crucify him. A couple things I want to point out here is the fact that the crown of thorns, as it was jammed on his head, you have to realize he was already a bloody mess, but he's even worse now because the, your scalp has lots of capillaries and you, anybody who knows that you scratched your head, it bleeds profusely. Well, these thorns were jammed into the tissue of his head and so blood was streaming down his face. Secondly, they put this cloth on open wounds on his back later to strip it off of him. If you can imagine, this porous cloth would quickly absorb the blood and the, the plasma and the fluids that were oozing out of his body. And then you know how blood is. It begins to harden rather quickly. And as it clots, it begins to stick to the wounds like a cheap bandage. And what do they do then? They they rip it off of him. There's a reason why we, we say, right, you have to rip the mandate off because we know it's painful. Imagine what that must have been like. This is in addition to the beatings that he was enduring and then the, the shame of being spat on. These men were brutally humiliating him and abusing him. But the big thing I want you to see, the big thing that you need to see here is despite their hatred and their mockery of Jesus, 
Their actions actually have prophetic significance, even though they don't realize it. You see, the prophetic element in their actions right, is, is there is a glimmer of the future. Because notice what they're doing. They are kneeling before Jesus. Their phony worship of Jesus, though a mockery in this moment, is reflective of a glorious truth that one day every knee will bow. Even the most powerful in the world will bow before Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14, For we all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. More specifically, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, to the glory of God the Father. The soldiers in their mockery do not realize they're acting out the very fate that awaits them. That there will come a day that they will come face to face before Christ the King and they will confess Him that He is Lord and they will bow their knee in submission to Him as with all of the world. No matter how powerful they may be, every king that has ever lived, every president that has ever been the head of our country, every emperor, every dictator, every despot, every person who's ever had any power at all, all of them, like the rest of the world, will bow in submission to the reigning sovereign king, Jesus Christ. Right? And they will say, say, hail, not to the king of the Jews, but to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the king of all things. They will confess that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord. But for now, they mock him, and they continue to injure him and lead him away to be crucified. Then it says in verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Part of the process of crucifixion was for the condemned person that they had to actually carry their cross through the city, Right? To the place of execution, this was a humiliating experience. But Jesus, wounded by the scourging and the beatings, and all that he had suffered was, was weak. He was weakened to the point that he couldn't even bear his own cross in that moment. And the Romans, who themselves would not help him, found someone in the crowd and forced them to help him. Because under the Roman law, they could do that. They could actually make someone carry a burden for up to a mile. That was the rule. It was the law in all of Rome. Right? Hence the expression that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This is also where we get our expression, go the extra mile from. It comes from the law that applied all over the Roman Empire that soldiers could compel you against your will to carry a burden, but they could only do it for a mile. And this man, Simon, was forced to help Jesus carry his cross. And I pause here for a moment because I need to mention the fact that there is a tendency in many Christians to romanticize this man for helping Jesus. There, there's a tendency to look upon this man as he is somebody really special in this story. In fact, I've heard pastors uh, talk about this man as something or someone extraordinary in character. In fact, I even heard a famous preacher who's known the world over who happened to be white in an effort to be racially relevant to the rest of his, 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 uh, his audience, he spent a great deal of time explaining that this man had great cultural significance for our time. You see, he reasoned that since this man was from Cyrene and Cyrene was from North Africa, that this man who helped Jesus carry his cross was black. This famous preacher made it a point in his sermon to say that this is a black man who carried the cross with Jesus, is not a, not a white man. He made a point to highlight this to his audience to have favor with them. But there are several problems with this approach to the text. Number one is the fact that we can't approve his assumption here. 
Historically speaking, we do not know what the color of his skin was. There's no way to know for sure. We don't have the historical basis to make this assumption. The fact is, he was from North Africa, right? Not sub-Saharan Africa. And Cyrene was a region of Libya that was founded as a Greek city. And it was controlled by the Romans. Not to mention, right, in the city of Cyrene was a large group of Jewish residents. People who came from Judah. And so, so Simon was probably ethnically Jewish. Which means he probably appeared Middle Eastern. He probably looked more like the Jews in Jerusalem than he did from people in Ethiopia. Now understand, we know for a fact that he wasn't white European, right? But the fact of the matter is, is he's probably more than likely not also black. The second issue is, the color of his skin is irrelevant to the story. Right? This is a thing that we as Christians need to get over. The color of our skin is irrelevant to the story of the gospel. This man helped Christ not because he was a good man. This man helped Christ not because he was somebody special. This man helped Christ not because he had dark skin. This man helped Christ because the Romans made him do it. And remember, the hero of this story is not Simon of Cyrene. The hero of this story is Jesus Christ. Focusing on Simon actually changes our perspective on the real issue. The real issue is Christ is carrying his cross, and it was a huge burden that resulted in great suffering for him. And this is the image that we need to look at and remember when we think about Jesus' words in Mark 8, when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. We should be seeing that following Jesus, what it really means It means willingly embracing the suffering that he puts us through to follow him if need be. It is to willingly suffer for Christ, even when it's super hard. Even if that suffering seems impossible in the moment. Even if that suffering leads us to our own death. That's why the whole experiential gospel offends me. Just turn to Jesus and he's going to make your life better. Just turn to Jesus and all your pain will go away. Just turn to Jesus and he has a, because he has a wonderful plan for your life. Just turn to Jesus because, because he's awesome. We turn to Jesus because he's our hope. We turn to Jesus because we are under the awful and terrible wrath of God and we are rightfully condemned for our sin but Christ in his suffering made a way for us to be saved from our sin and from that wrath. We repent and believe the gospel, right? Because because taken he has taken us. We who were his enemies in rebellion to him and he has transformed our hearts and our lives and he has given us a new nature so that we can be adopted into his family. Enemies family And then he doesn't just bid us to sit back and relax. He bids us to do what? Follow him. Even if it means to follow him into the worst kind of suffering possible. Look at Christ in this moment. Beaten and bloodied beyond recognition, barely able to carry his cross, suffering horrific agony, knowing the suffering will get worse, knowing he's on his way to his doom. It is into that that Jesus beckons us to follow him. Now now hear me. As a born-again believer, in my life I have experienced many of God's blessings. Temporal blessings here and now. My life has been good. God has provided me all of my needs And he has blessed me with so much goodness, I couldn't even recount it all. I couldn't even explain it all. And my day-to-day life is not all about suffering. Right? In fact, following Jesus in many areas of my life has actually made my life better in many respects. My life has gotten better in many areas of my life. I'm a better man because of Christ. I'm a better husband because of Christ. Ask my wife. I'm a better father 
I can have more joy, have more happiness because of Christ, but understand these are not the things that will lead me to the foot of the cross. These are not the things that will sustain my hope when all is lost. These are, th- are not the things that, I mean, they do certainly give me joy, for sure. Please hear me. But they're not the things that will cause me to pick up my cross and follow Jesus. What beckons me, what causes me to follow Jesus into the deepest, darkest place is the fact that He is my supreme treasure. That He is my greatest desire and His promise to save me is the only thing that I can really count on in this world. And because of that, if my Christ beckons me to suffer, I pray by the grace of God, I will. Now the reason why Mark mentions who Simon is and who his sons are, it's not because he's special as a person, but because Simon and his sons were living eyewitnesses at the time of the writing of the gospel. Right? By mentioning their names in the kind of detail that he does, what Mark is saying is, if you don't believe me, then go talk to Simon, the guy that's from Cyrene. Right? You know, the guy that has two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Right? In fact, talk to them and he'll, they'll tell you what I'm telling you is to be true. They were there. He carried the cross with Jesus. The fact is, Paul makes mention of, of, of Rufus himself, one of the sons, in Romans 16, 13. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. The thing is, Mark mentions Simon and his sons to make reference like a footnote in a story so that you have a reference to be able to go corroborate what's being said. And then we have in verse 22, Mark says... And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Oftentimes people, in an effort to be humanitarians, would offer the the condemned wine mixed with a narcotic in order to numb their senses and dull their pain. Crucifixion is a horrific and incredibly form of execution. It is one of the worst possible ways to die. Right, And so they would offer people this narcotic, in order to basically kind of help with the pain. But Jesus refused. He wanted nothing to do with something that would dull his senses in the moments or anything that would ease his pain because he was determined to suffer to the fullest extent on our behalf. Mark says in verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now I want you to notice that Mark doesn't belabor the point here. He just gets right to the point and he says they crucified him. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the details of how that happened and what they did to him. And the reason, the reality is, is the reason why he didn't have to talk about it is culturally they knew exactly what that meant. Right? Those in the Roman Empire knew exactly what that involved. Crucifixion was probably invented by the Persians, but it was absolutely perfected by the Romans. They were good at this form of torture. And the Romans used this method of execution often and to great effect. The first century statesman, the the first century Roman statesman, Cicero said, this is a man who is a member of the, the Roman elite, says that crucifixion is the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Not to mention the Romans would at times crucify thousands of people at a time. They would line the roads with people on the cross. In fact, Josephus records that during the siege of Jerusalem, over a thousand Jews were crucified at one time around the city. They used this form of torture to really let people know that if you want to stand up against us, it's going to cost you dearly. And so Mark's audience would have immediately understood the horror that Christ endured simply by making the statement that that they crucified him. But Mark also records that the soldiers cast his lots. Now, Mark doesn't really spend a lot of time stating overtly that scriptures have been fulfilled, but he does make reference to the fact that they have been fulfilled. He doesn't say it outright, but what we see is this is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. A prophecy about the Messiah, and it, and it reads very explicitly, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
The details of the crucifixion literally fulfill the prophecies contained in Psalm 22. In fact, it would be good for you to spend some time reading through that text. You'll see the suffering of Christ all over it. And then when you want, then you, when you want your heart to be lifted up, then you turn to the next psalm, Psalm 23. And then Mark goes on and says, and it was the third hour or nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, even though the Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, this was the official charge made against him. The charge of insurrection. Right? His claim that he is the king of the Jews, he used against him, even though he was no threat to Rome. By the way, this was his justification to actually kill him. So that way, if anybody ever came and said, why did you kill that man? Said, he said he was the king of the Jews. But it was also a way to mock the Jewish people. He didn't just do it just for that. He also wanted to mock them. And then in Mark 27, it writes, and, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. Now, if you remember, last week we talked about the fact that the Greek word that we translate as robbers into English is probably better in this context translated or rendered as insurrectionist. This is really kind of the idea. This is the same word they used when they came out against Jesus. Like they didn't come out against him like he's a, a, like a common thief, right? They came out against him because of, of leading an insurrection, Right? And so they probably were insurrection. These men were probably insurrectionists that had been caught with Barabbas in the recent uprising in the city. In fact, they were all three, remember, scheduled to be condemned that day, but Jesus trades places with Barabbas. And notice the details. Jesus is crucified between them with the charge of being the king of the Jews. This has really big implications that Jesus himself, right, was there in the middle. Right? What, what the Romans were basically saying is, Jesus is the leader of this insurrection. And these men were then his followers. This is an expression right, of, of basically who he is. Right? There's one on the right and one on the left. This expression ought to remind us of when James and John made this request. What did they ask of him? Can we sit on your right and your left when you're seated in your place of glory? And Jesus said, you can't drink from the cup that I'm about to drink. Pilate right here, though, is making a statement, and this is what happens to you when would-be messiahs and their followers stand up, that they're immediately met by the wrath of Rome. And then notice it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the first people, group of people that we encounter in this story who mock Jesus were the soldiers. But next, Mark identifies another group of people he calls the passers-by. People who just pass by, mock Jesus. In fulfillment, by the way, of Psalm 22, verse 7. It says, And... And he, and, excuse me, it says, all who see me mock me and make mouths at me and wag their heads. Mark doesn't identify us for us who these people are by a class. He doesn't identify them by name or by, their, by some type of other identity. He just says that there are people passing by. The reality is this is probably just your average person passing by. Right? Either citizens of Jerusalem or pilgrims who were in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, obviously, they were Jewish because they were concerned with the temple. That's, you know, that was the issue that they brought up. In fact, they mocked Jesus over the temple. You see, the temple had, had been seen as the center of Jewish culture. It was central to their identity as, as a people. The temple represented their relationship with God. It was really the centerpiece of their self-understanding as individuals and as a collective. But remember, as we've seen, this understanding had actually been hijacked. 
Because what once represented a relationship with God became about status and legalism and profiteering and about excluding the world that they were actually called to invite to be a part of. Remember, that's why Jesus drove the money changers and the merchants out of the temple in an act of judgment of their leadership and the judgment of the temple itself. In fact, Jesus predicted the destruction at some point in the near future, and He said that not one stone of the temple would be left on top of another. But these people had heard Jesus talk about destroying the temple and then raising it again in three days, not realizing He was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about something else. He was talking about Himself. But not knowing that, they felt like He was a threat. Not only to the temple, but to their very culture. That's why they mocked him. He was, he was mocked because he was a cultural threat. He was a threat to their very way of life. He was a threat to their self-identity. He was a threat to how they saw themselves as people. And in light of that, what we see then, this group of passers-by, really represents the culture at large. You see, the culture at large, much like those who were in power, have always been threatened by Christ in the church. Because Christ reminds them that they are at odds with God and that they're under His judgment. This was the nation that was sent, that He sent to the nation of Israel. This was the message He sent to them and the leaders in the temple when He came into Jerusalem. He was basically telling them they had failed to do what God created them to do and to be what God created them to be. And now they were under the condemnation and the judgment of God. Remember, they wanted him to be the guy who would write in and deliver them from the Romans, and instead he comes in and he judges them. Now, is there any better description of our culture today, of why? Right? Today, because our culture hates Christ. Our culture hates the church because the Word of God condemns them, that they're under the judgment of God. Our culture is under the judgment of a holy and righteous and just God. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's a culture that celebrates the right to murder unborn children and call it health care. It's a culture that celebrates the the destruction of the biblical family. It's a culture that celebrates and worships all manner of sexual deviancy but then we'll criticize men and women who hold to the biblical definition of marriage and, to the, and, and hold to biblical traditional family roles. But, let, but let's be clear. Our culture hates Christ because Christ is a threat to their cultural understanding of themselves. If there is a, a, an identity crisis we have, it's that one. As everybody's in love with their own self-image. But Christ threatens that. That's why well-meaning ministers and pastors today, in an attempt to win these people over, rather than confronting them with the truth, they, they capitulate on many of these cultural issues. This is why we, ha- we are hearing pastors today say that they're gay-affirming or trans-affirming or every other sexual sin or confusion-affirming. This is why you have pastors today, like you would have never heard before, stand up and say that they're as Pastors, they are pro-choice because they have lost their love for Christ in order to gain the love of the culture. Hear me on this, though. We ought to be loving in every possible way we can, but our first love is to Christ. Our first and highest love is to His Word, which means we must always speak the truth. Speak the truth in love, but we must speak the truth nonetheless. And let me speak truth to you now. For every minister who claims to be pro-choice, that pastor ought to be removed from leadership immediately from, by their church because they're not fit for leadership. In fact, I would even go so far to say there's a good chance that the people, these people who say that they are pro-choice, I would say that there's a chance, I can't say for sure, but there's a chance that they're not born again. They may not even be Christians. Because I cannot even understand how a person can claim to have the Holy Spirit change their hearts 
and how a person can make Jesus the Lord of their life and have the Holy Spirit indwell them and convict them of their sin and then read the Word of God and then believe that it's all right as a parent to have your children slaughtered in the womb. I cannot rationalize how those things go together. Because that's what abortion is, by the way. It's the intentional killing of an innocent person, which, by the way, is the definition of murder. But because of the rise of cultural pressure, many people who claim to follow Christ and many who claim to have authority to shepherd Christ's flock today will say that they are pro-choice and pro-LGBTQ+, and affirm every other kind of group there is to affirm. And they will affirm that Jesus came into the world to make them better people, more loving people, and more awesome people. Right? Because the truth is the culture hates Christ. And it hates his word. And that is what we see here. These nameless, faceless people mock Jesus because he's a threat to the culture itself. But then like the soldiers, there's a prophetic element to their mocking. They mock Jesus for claiming to destroy the temple, right? And they say to him, come down from the cross, but they don't realize two important things. Number one, God in 1870 will destroy the temple, right? And through the Roman army, he will raise it completely to the ground and it will not be rebuilt. And then when that happens, the entire Jewish culture will change irreparably. Because the centerpiece of their identity and and the centerpiece of their theology will be lost. There will no longer be sacrifices. There will no longer be a day of atonement for them. They will have to rethink everything, rethink their entire theology, and even how they have to deal with their sin in the coming decades and centuries. And, And the result is going to be Judaism today. Judaism today is not the same Judaism as Second Temple Judaism in the first century. It is not. It's not the same theology at all. They had to rethink everything because of this radical change, because of the temple being destroyed. Number two, Christ will be a threat to their culture also because Christ is the new temple. In fact, the temple and the Levitical system, all of that pointed forward to him, to Christ. The temple and the law and the sacrificial system all pointed to Jesus. He is now the new temple. And the temple of his body, as he said, would be destroyed, but three days would be raised up, glorified. And more than that, he will become the cornerstone of the great temple that he himself is building, which is Christ and his church. The temple will change the entire world as a result. Suddenly our theology begins to make sense when we're told that we are, that we are living stones, that we're part of this edifice, we are part of His body. The church, the temple of Christ, would change the world. Right? You see, the culture will mock and seek to subvert Christ and His church throughout history, but Christ and His church will always prevail because not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. And then... In verse 31, Mark writes, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. The third group of people Mark identifies as mocking Jesus is the high priests, or in other words, the religious elites. They know why they're they're there. And we know why they're mocking Him. These religious elites had been the most visible opponents of Christ throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. We have seen them over and over and over again. And the reason why they hated Him, and the reason why they're mocking Him now, and the reason why they wanted to kill Him is because He was a religious threat. He was a great threat to their religious authority. They believed that they were the ones who were right with God. They were the, believed that they were the rightful leaders of, of Israel. They believed that they were the rightful expositors of the law. They believed that they were examples of virtue and righteousness. In fact, if, if Christ had not showed them otherwise, their outward expression might have led people to believe that they were. But then Christ comes along and holds the mirror of the law up for them, and they see really who they really are and how desperate they are. 
And when they see this and they understand this, there's only one choice to make. Either they get in line and humble themselves and submit and follow Christ, or they reject Him and conspire and kill Him so they can stay in power. What these men represent is self-righteous religion. We see throughout history how men have used religion, including Christian, including people who call themselves Christians, to gain power and influence. This is what happened, by the way, to the, to the Catholic Church over the centuries. Right? The Catholic Church at one time possessed the gospel, and it, it was the light of the world, but it slowly became a system of works righteousness and bureaucracy and political intrigue. And the gospel in the process was lost. Even today, Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church is about authority and control and about, about all the extra sacraments to be saved, to live in a state of grace, and they still wield great political power. We see that much of the same in the LDS Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses Church as well. It, because it's about what? It's about what you can do for God. All of these things have that in common. It's about what you can do for God. It is about self-righteousness. It, it is about works. It is about hierarchies and attaining the next level. It's about command and control. And there are people politically motivated, by the way, in all of these organizations to stay in control. Right? An, an interesting revelation of that is, is, is what's being published now about the Church of Scientology. You talk about something that's just a wild and strange experience. Just You should study up on that. There are people politically motivated to stay in control, and these people mock Christ and the gospel. And, and the Jews, they mocked for the idea that being saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, is a farce. Right? For the self-righteous, the gospel of grace doesn't make any sense. And, it, and it's... It was the same for these men, by the way. Right? It was ingrained in their religious tradition. that They just couldn't go where Jesus was leading. In fact, did you know that, that, that one of the first threats against the early church was not the Romans? One of the very first threats against the early church was the Jews themselves. It was they that, that sought to persecute the church. Think about Paul, right? It was they, those who sought to pervert the gospel at first. That's why Paul had to write the letter to the Galatians. The idea that a person could be saved and be a child of God without actually becoming a Jew offended these people. Right? And so they began to teach that the only way that you could become a Christian is for you to become part of the Jewish community and obey the law. And Paul had to write this whole letter basically demonstrating that that's not the truth. You see, the nature of self-righteous legal religion is to mock Christ and the gospel of grace. And that's what they're doing here. They're mocking Christ. But like the other groups, their mocking had a prophetic element to it, and that is the cross. Notice what, what, what they say. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. You see, they recognize his divine power to save others, and they can see that he's from God, but they mock him for not saving himself, not understanding why he's even there in the first place. Notice they say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. The thing that you need to realize is this. If Jesus would have responded and took them up on their request to come down from the cross in that moment so they could see and believe, they would have absolutely seen the glory of Christ and they would have stood in amazement of Him. right? And, and they, would, they would have believed and they might have even bowed their knee and said that He's the Lord, but the problem is they would have died in their sin in the process. I don't know if you realize that, but if Jesus would have came off the cross and confirmed for them that He was the Messiah in the way that they wanted Him to, they would have seen Him, they would have believed in Him, but they still would have been lost, they would have died in their sin, and they still would have went to hell along with the rest of the world. You see, the reason why Christ did not save Himself is He was there saving us. The thing that they didn't understand is that Christ's atonement is what brings forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you believe. If He doesn't atone for our sins, we're lost. 
If Christ does not suffer and die on the cross, no one can be saved. Because our sins must be atoned for. God's justice must be satisfied. Without Christ's death, our faith would have been meaningless. Had Christ granted their wish, their faith in Him would have only served to condemn them even further. But Christ did not come off the cross. Instead, He stayed and He bore the full weight of God's divine wrath and judgment so that we could be forgiven. And so the soldiers mocked Him. The passers-by mocked Him. The religious elites mocked Him. But there's one more group of people who mocked Him. Notice it says, those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. And who was it that was crucified with him? Well, the English again says they were robbers, but we know these men to be insurrectionists. It was the insurrectionists that were mocking Jesus. But think about this. Why would they mock him? If he was just a common criminal like them, why would they revile him? Why would they have anything to say? Well, think about this. What were they arrested for? Created an insurrection against their oppressors. They were fighting back against Rome, right? And what do they and the rest of the Jews know about Jesus at this point in time? That he didn't come to create an insurrection like they wanted him to. He was not fighting back against Rome like they wanted him to. Remember, Jesus rides in the city on the back of a donkey. The entire city's electric. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. They believe, they know he's the king, he's the Messiah, and they were expecting him to come into town and lead a political revolt against Rome and drive out the oppressors. People were ready to follow him, but Jesus refused to do that. Instead, what does he do? He goes in the temple and he pronounces judgment on Israel itself and its leaders. And he doesn't bring judgment against Rome and, and Jew, the, uh, their oppressors. He brings judgment against Israel. He didn't come to lead a political revolt like they were expected. They were mocking him because he was not an insurrectionist like them. He was not, right? But he was there crucified in the middle of them, by the way. He wasn't the insurrectionist, but he was being crucified in the middle of them with a plaque over his head that called him the king of the Jews as if he were their leader. He was crucified as the leader of the insurrection, an insurrection he had no part of. They mocked him because he was not their leader and he was not part of their movement. In fact, they mocked him because he was a threat to their movement. Jesus did not come to set the Jews free from Roman power, much to the chagrin of the, the people like them. That much was clear. His goal was not alignment with theirs. He was not there on the same team. For these insurrectionists, Jesus was a failure to them and their goals. He did incredible things. He was the most popular person in all of Judea, and everybody was ready to follow him. But he did not set the Jews free from Roman oppression. And so he was a threat to their movement because all these radicals cared about was getting rid of the Roman oppressors. That's all they cared about. They could care less about the rest of the world. They didn't care. You see, these men, these men represent the militants and the zealots of causes. Did you know that it was the zealots that forced the issue with the Romans that led to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem? It was the militants and, and the zealots in the city who actually who wanted to force the fight between the Romans and the Jews, that they actually burned the city's resources, the food that they had. They could have survived years inside of the city with the siege happening around them. But the radicals burnt the food to force people into a fight with Rome because that's all they cared about. That's all they cared about was their cause. All they cared about was their agenda. Now here's the thing, is we see echoes of men like this today. The modern day equivalent of this is ideological social justice movement. Right? Where all that matters to people is ending what they perceive to be some sort of oppression. Right? Now, as Christians, we're interested absolutely in biblical justice. We are interested in doing what's right, but ideological social justice is another issue today. 
In fact, one of the greatest threats that faces our nation right now is the class warfare that's being promoted by those who are working for what they call social justice. This includes groups like Black Lives Matter and all the myriad of LGBT plus groups. There is a movement in our country today that has adopted Marxist ideologies and has broken down everything into oppressor or oppressed classes, and they divided everybody up into little groups and subgroups and even more subgroups, and as a result, they created this class warfare right, in order to tear down what they perceive to be an oppressive nation and culture. They're pitting everyone against everyone. And many people have taken these ideas and they've infected the church with them. And now many churches have lost their focus on the gospel, claiming the reason why Christ came in the world was to end oppression. That's what, they, what some churches say, that Jesus was an oppressed minority member who fought against an oppressive regime and died to set the oppressed free. But here's the truth. The Bible bears witness against that idea. Christ didn't die to set the Jews free from Rome. Christ didn't die to set the slaves free from their masters at their time. Read the Bible. Christ didn't die favoring one class of people over another class of people. He didn't do it. Christ died on the cross to make atonement for all of God's people. People from every nation. From people from every tribe, from every tongue. Christ died to set all of his people free. Christ, didn't, Christ died to set people free from the bondage of sin, not, from, not free from the bondage of men and other governments in this life. He came to set people free from the bondage of, of sin and death and Satan himself. But these men mocked Jesus because he was not aligned with their temporal, momentary program. Christ has a different agenda. But again, their mocking was prophetic in their significance because the prophetic element we see in this is the fact that Jesus was crucified in the center and He is declared, whether they like it or not, to be the King. The truth is, whether they want it or not, whether they expect it or not, that Christ is the King of all. He's not the King just of Israel. He's the King of the universe. And hear me, Christ did not come to restore a tiny little nation, a nation kingdom back in the Middle East. He came to establish His own kingdom across the entire world. Christ did not come to bring peace to this world in this lifetime. He came to bring peace between God and man. Christ did not come to end oppression between one group of people over another in this lifetime. He came to, to set people free from the oppression of our sin and an oppression from our death and an oppression from Satan himself. Christ's program is not about one class of people. <clears throat> Christ's program is, all about, is about all of his people regardless of who they are and where they come from. As we, as we get close to wrapping up, I want you to hear me. <clears throat> as Christians and as members of the body of Christ, we absolutely should be concerned with biblical justice. I want you to hear me on this. We absolutely should stand up for those who are weak. We should seek reconciliation between people groups. We should call wrong, wrong, and right, right. And we ought to seek peace to the best of our ability with everyone. The Bible commands us to do that. But our primary mission is the gospel. Our primary mission is the gospel because the greatest problem that the world faces is not what divides groups. The greatest problem in the world is not oppression. The greatest problem in the world is not racism or sexism or any ism. The greatest problem in the world is sin. <coughs> Sin is the root of all racism. Sin is the root of hatred. Sin is the root of pride. Sin is the root of sexual immorality. Sin is the root of class warfare. The greatest problem we face is sin itself. Sin affects all of life, and sin 
also has its consequences for the next life. Christ came to solve our greatest problem, our sin problem. And until we embrace that, we will fall prey to the militants and the radicals that seek to divide us into little groups. So here we have Christ on the cross, despised and mocked, suffering for our sins. And this is where we we leave the story for this week. But with that, what do we need to do with this? The thing that we need to realize, what we need to do with this is to realize and come to terms with the fact that everyone, everyone, everyone rejected Christ. Everyone. The Jews and the Gentiles. The Israelites and the Romans. The powerful and the weak. The rich and the poor. The religious and the irreligious. Those who followed him rejected him, and so did his enemies. Those who were famous <coughs> and those who were nameless. Even the oppressors and the oppressed themselves rejected him. They all rejected him because he, in some way, was a threat to them. He was a threat to either their life or their freedom or their power or their wealth or their program. I don't know if you realize it, but that really Christ is a threat to everyone on some level. Because embracing Christ and following Him means you have to give something up. Maybe it's something important to you. You might have to give up <coughs> some of your money. You might have to give up your favorite sin. You might have to, to give up your sexual identity. You might have to give up freedom, literally or even figuratively. You might even have to give up your political ideals. They all... They all had something to lose. Jesus says, deny yourself, right? That's why everyone rejected Christ. But there is the good news. Christ, because of His love for the glory of the Father and for the love of His people and, for the, and by His grace, even though He was despised and rejected and rejected by all, He suffered and He died for them. This is the truth I think we must proclaim to the world. A world that seeks to divide us into little bitty groups. A world that seeks to divide us into classes and subclasses and pit us against each other. Right? We need to tell them the truth, and this is the truth, that Christ died for His people. His people over all the world. He died for Jews and Gentiles. He died for the powerful and the weak. He died for the rich and the poor. He died for the religious and the irreligious. He died for his followers as well as his enemies. We were his enemies. He died for the famous and the nameless. He died even for the oppressed and the oppressor. As much as people don't want to believe it today, he died for even the oppressors. He died for Republicans and Democrats. How many people would argue about that today on Facebook all over the place? He died for those who have lots of melanin in their skin, and he died for those who have very little and everybody in between. He died for Americans and Mexicans and Canadians and Arabians and people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and he died for the homeless as well as the people who have 10 mansions. Christ died for people in every class, in every demographic, in every possible subdivision that we can possibly imagine. And the truth is, Christ on the cross should unite us into one family. And in light of that, we must, for the sake of the gospel, reject class warfare. And we, and because class warfare takes our eyes off of the gospel. And so hear me. This is the admonition part. If you hate rich people because they're rich, you need to repent. If you hate poor people because they're poor, you need to repent. If you hate people because they're black or because they're white or whatever their skin color may be, you need to repent. If you hate people because of who they voted for, you need to repent. If you call yourself a Christian, you need to repent of that. If you hate people who are different from you in any way, you need to repent. Because not one of us not one of us is so righteous and so good that we deserve the grace of God. It is all, all of us and our sin that, helped, that sent Christ to the cross. 
And it was His unmerited love and His grace for us that He didn't come off that cross until His work was finished. This is the gospel we must preach, brothers and sisters. This is the thing that we need must be united around. No matter what else happens in the world around us, no matter what the governments do, no matter what politicians do or celebrities do or whatever, we must be united in the centrality of Christ on the cross. Look at Him on the cross, suffering and dying for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.